0: The following is a presentation of the Retro Network.
1: Hello, Sequel Questers. This is a Sequel Quest Rewind. Diving back into the archive.
0: Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic journey to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for long, so let the adventure begin now.
1: Welcome, Sequel Questers. We are back with a new movie. This week, we will be diving into Midnight in Paris, the Woody Allen film from 2011. With us today is me, Jeremy, our co-host, Adam. Heidi, hey. Jeff. Heidi, ho.
2: And Judy.
0: Uh, Heidi who? What?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Very nice. We have fun here. Oh, Judy, welcome back. It's so good to have you.
0: Thanks. Good to be
2: back. Uh, Without this, I I should say, if you're a regular listener to the show, you'll probably recognize this as a departure for what we normally do, a Woody Allen film, not a superhero or blockbuster film or super retro, an actual Oscar-nominated film. (laughs) Well, that's all thanks to Judy. When we said, Judy, we'd love to have you back on, what would be your suggestion? She came out with Midnight in Paris. Judy, can you tell us why? give give us that what what was in in your mind
0: (laughs) well it is I think Woody Allen's most profitable movie so it is a blockbuster for Woody Allen but yeah it's just like a different movie than you guys do but it still has some of the elements that you guys often address like there's fantasy in it you know there's comedy so I thought it would be kind of like easy to make sequels out of because there's that potential there with the fantasy elements but it's just a different style you know there's not like guns a-blazing or robots, so um, <laughs> I just thought it would be fun to kind of, like, apply the conversation to a kind of different direction, and he's such an interesting slash controversial Woody
2: Allen is like Woody Allen to me, like again, I'm not super familiar with his work. I think I've seen two and a half of his films. Like I think (laughs) an an ex-girlfriend had Hollywood ending in her library of films for some reason. I saw, yeah, on a on a date, I saw Curse of the Jade Scorpion in theaters, and then I watched most of Annie Hall on Netflix once, but I I didn't really grab me till the end. So it's just like I, I don't know. I know Woody Allen and I know he's held on such a high pedestal, right? By, you know, comedy people and film lovers. And at the same time, like you said, he's kind of got that persona that is almost more popular, I feel, than like his film work or whatever. It's that archetype that he is, that is pervasive in pop culture. You think of Woody Allen, oh, because it's very, oh geez, because I don't know, to me, he sounds like if there's any Jerky Boys fans out there, this is Saul Rosenberg, I fell down the stairs. And my shoes fell off. I know he's he's a little bit different than that, <laughs> but still, you know. That, I mean, like, where do you guys fall on Woody Allen's filmography? Have you seen a lot of his work? Uh, do you count yourself among his fans?
0: I've seen a lot. Like, I went deep into Woody Allen. Like, I've seen a lot of Woody Allen. Wow. Um, I would say I was a fan of his at one point, and I think today. I'm still interested in his movies. I still think he's interesting, but just because of some of his controversies, I'm kind of like, that puts me off a little. And I do think that just as he's aged, like, some things don't work as well as they used to, so when he's in his own movies these days, I'm kind of like, Oh, it's not as good. Like, he's just I don't want to say he's too old, but it's just like what he was doing for so many years, it's just not working now that you're like 80. You know? Well, yeah, so yeah, like, it seems oh. like he,
2: he was usually like the young, kind of virile, you know, like clever, quick with a guy who's dating and whatever. You should be dating in your 80s, right? <laughs> when, you're, when you're 75, you know, it just yeah, doesn't play the same, yeah, it's
0: totally different, but I'm I mean i've seen a ton of his work so yeah it's just always interesting to me and i think like he like you're saying like he is very influential in comedy like if you watch especially early seinfeld like george costanza that's woody allen like he's pulling (laughs) a lot from woody allen so it's definitely yeah he's been a huge influence on a lot of people so he's just interesting to look at what he's putting out there so and he puts out a movie every year since
2: which is crazy
0: 1971 so it's It's just insane. You have a lot to choose from.
2: Very prolific. But Jeff, so how many of those have you seen?
3: I've become more of an appreciator since Judy because, again, she is a big Woody Allen fan. And one, it's been a while now, but the 90s, the big controversy where he was, was he married to Mia Farrow? He was married to Mia Farrow and Mm -hmm. then he had an affair with his stepdaughter who was way younger than him. And it's the crazy thing about Woody Allen is that Woody Allen clearly did not care what anybody thought about him. So it, Judy said it really created this aura where his movies came out and it definitely had that cloud hanging over them, kind of like Roman Polanski films do. And so that's that sort of a controversy. But the funny thing about Woody Allen, like for me, the more I've thought about it, especially this week, that Woody Allen, I feel, is is a lot like Bob Dylan where Bob Dylan, like, a lot of people that don't like Bob Dylan can't get over the fact that he sounds like that when he sings. And it's <laughs> the same thing with Woody Allen, is that, like you said about Woody Allen, like, is that that's the the perception that Woody Allen is very Woody Allen-y, and his movies have him being himself. And it's almost like that, for a lot of people, I feel like that almost gets in the way of his brilliance, and same thing with bob dylan a lot of bob dylan's amazing songs that he's written people don't get them until somebody else records them mm-hmm. so the same thing kind of that might be in the way of woody allen but it was the funny thing like especially with this and we can get more into this movie as we go but like it's the funny thing about woody allen is that i feel like all of his movies are essentially autobiographical in a lot of ways and that he has this big chip on his shoulder where he's always, he's angry at women, he's kind of angry at like people who look down at him, he's angry at people that think they're smarter than him, he's angry at people that he thinks he's smarter than, and so he makes these movies where he kind of brings a lot of that out, and sometimes it seems like he realizes he has a chip on his shoulder, and sometimes not, where sometimes it's just he seems oblivious to the fact that you're kind of condescending in the way that you're doing this. But that's also I think part of the brilliance that it's just it's kind of stream of consciousness of here's Woody Allen's brain on screen like Annie Hall is such a great example of Bleh. here's my life for all to see <laughs> Yeah, wait wait wait, 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 wait,
2: wait. So
1: you're so you're just saying <laughs> that he's an angry little Jewish man? Whatever irks him, he just throws out on the screen and it's like, ha, ah, I got well, it's, you it's like, and I like made money off of it. It's
3: not about that, yeah. but it's about, and I mean, it, to a certain extent, and I know even Judy and I were talking about earlier about this idea, like with the controversial part of it. Can we separate the art from the artist? I mean, the tough thing for me these days is Bill Cosby. I love Bill Cosby's stand-up, but can you ever look at Bill Cosby's performance without thinking about Bill Cosby the man now? Because he's so tainted. So the same thing with Woody Allen, where it's the art itself coming from a place of maybe bitterness and he has this chip on his shoulder, but at the same time, that's raw. And he's able to express himself through film so well that I think that that's what makes his movies so unique is that a lot of other people... Michael Bay, I don't feel like Transformers... Tells me at all who Michael Bay is. I hope not. I really hope not. Uh, it might. It might.
0: <laughs> well, and to Jeremy's question, I think, and kind of what Jeff was saying, like, I don't think anger is what characterizes the character of Woody Allen. It's neuroticness or <laughs> That's true. So That's true. Okay. That, okay. But it's all about him being fearful, insecure, but also brash. So it's all just this mess of a person. Like, he's always a mess where he's like, I'm super afraid of death. But but I want to be an artist. and I you know, So that's the character is just this neuroticness. So sometimes there is anger and frustration at the things that are frustrating to him. But a lot of it is also very self-deprecating. So I think that's why it's not annoying to watch because it is so self-deprecating. Well, he'll take a peg out of the people who he feels are like too intellectual. But then in the next scene, he's the one being like, uh, I'm afraid of driving a car. I like, guess. <laughs> yeah,
2: so. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> this movie benefits so much from not having him on screen, right? He he's just behind the camera. He's just behind the typewriter. And yes, he literally still writes with a typewriter. I watched the Woody Allen documentary. (laughs) There's a two-part documentary on Netflix you should check out. He literally just sits down and types on a typewriter, which is pretty awesome. But the whole thing with this film, it was a breath of fresh air for me. So like, thank you again, Judy, for suggesting it. It just gets me out of my rut of the types of films I usually choose. And I saw this and I could see why it won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. Number one, because Everything is an adaptation these days that comes out. So to get something original and fresh and like we were talking about that really is somewhat personal. I mean, as I understand it, this is very similar to a, a short story that Woody Allen wrote. And he even said the funny part about this is that he came up with the title first. And then wrote a movie around the title, Oh, wow. so which is really interesting. So it was almost like a writing exercise for him, which I find fascinating. But the whole cast, and the cast is not huge, but every face you can basically recognize. But I, I will say that the one for me that stood out the most when he appeared was Kurt Fuller, who plays Rachel McAdams' character's father. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. He's a guy who I just love from so many '80s films. I mean, he's, he's in Ghostbusters too. He's in Wayne's World. He, you know what I'm saying? He's in the yeah. Hulk Hogan movie, No Holds Barred. You know, like he's just,
3: he's I'm like sure he's proud of that one. <laughs> oh,
2: yes. <laughs> but he's, he's just had a great career playing those parts. And I actually read up on this. Uh, Woody Allen just sent him a letter that said, Hey, thought you'd have fun with this part. Are you interested? And he thought it was a joke and he didn't believe it. <laughs> then he finally just sent a letter back. He said, Are you kidding? Of course. You know, and that's the other thing that I've noticed about Woody Allen is if you look back at the cast of his films, he's worked with Like everybody, everybody wants to be in a Woody Allen film. And it definitely shows in this, like the the kind of people that he got that are kind of the current, you know, lineup of stars for the most part, I feel like.
3: Well, and the funny thing for me, like you were saying a breath of fresh air or whatever, because Woody Allen wasn't in it. But at the same time, like Woody Allen totally was in it because he found Owen Wilson. And Owen Wilson (laughs) was, oh my gosh, it's Woody Allen, like, but 30 years younger. And I was, I was telling Judy, I saw on Wikipedia, there is even a quote from Woody Allen where he says, Owen is a natural actor. He doesn't sound like he's acting. He sounds like a human being speaking in a situation. I'm like, of course, Woody Allen thinks that's how people talk because that's how he talks. <laughs> because the entire time he's doing oh. the exact same. Like, so if you, it just when I'm going and I dropped it, I dropped it on the floor and I didn't know. And like <laughs> it was Woody Allen writing Woody Allen with someone else performing it.
2: Yeah, with Owen Wilson, that was actually not his first choice. This is a very interesting thing I learned, which is he tried to make this movie back in 2006. And it just didn't come together. But what happened was that the person he was trying to cast was David Krumholtz. And I don't know if that name oh. rings a bell, oh. but he was in 10 Things I Hate About You. He was the star yeah. of Numbers, that TV show that ran for a while. Like, So he's like the yeah, perfect 20-hour yeah, 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 yeah. Gotcha. yeah, he would
3: have been great too, you know, but like, yeah, he it's been so interesting how
2: that could have gone.
0: It does change it though. He has a different energy.
3: Well, and I thought, Judy, like you were saying, and I mean, part of it's casting, but part of it's just characterization is that one of the things that is kind of emblematic of a Woody Allen movie is the archetypal female characters. Like, Judy, what were you talking about that?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, he has like three women that he writes, like three types that end up in his movies. And they're all in this movie, like pretty clearly. So first is the emasculating, controlling woman who, you know, is not good. And so that's the fiance character. You're like, why are you with this person? She's terrible. But she's just, you know, totally emasculating and dismissive of all of his hopes and dreams and ideas. That type appears a lot in Woody Allen movies. And then you have almost like the foil for Woody Allen, where it's always this neurotic, kind of needy, kind of lost, a little scattered woman who's maybe going from guy to guy to guy just because she doesn't know what she wants in life. And so that's the Marianne Cotillard character who's like you know oh I'm with Pablo Picasso I'm with Hemingway and it's like what who does that like she's neurotic she's like the Woody Allen character and that's that's Annie Hall I mean that's Diane Keene, basically like that, that figure appears a lot and then the third one is the little more like disconcerting the innocent very young but wise old soul this young pure virginal girl who somehow can rescue the much older neurotic character from his neurosis give him a newly sun life but is also an old soul so they're matched in that way and that's kind of like but i mean it's he he has that figure a lot and that's that girl at the end that he kind of meets at the nostalgia gabrielle Gabrielle. yeah Yeah. Gabrielle, gabrielle so those are like his three women that he seems to always Right and come back to and so it's kind of seeing them all in one film kind of compared to each other but um, yeah
3: uh, which is again oh, yeah, the part so. that like for me i find so fascinating where it really is this window into woody allen's psyche where you can tell about the relationship that he has with women where it's, he sees all women as fitting into one of these three things and for me recognizing that rather than being offended by like oh what a horrible stereotype of a woman. It's like, no, no, this is a window into his brain.
2: Yeah, well, if if you go back, and we'll get to the plot summary here in just a second to let you know what this movie's all about if you haven't seen it, but if you go back and look on YouTube at the interviews that Woody Allen did with Dick Cavett Back in the day, that's where I find him most appealing. Outside of his films, is just these interviews that he does for like an hour at a time, and when he literally does all these jokes about his terrible relationship with his mother. If you look at, the, if you watch the documentary, it's all about how they just had a very complicated relationship. So that's where it all stems from. Or just to yeah. throw
3: one more in again, what I like about Woody Allen is he's not afraid to look like a mess or whatever. There's that movie. I don't know if we watched it together, Adam, but there's that movie called The Imposters with Oliver Platt and Stanley Tucci. And they're like these out of work actors. And at one point, they auditioned to be in a Woody Allen play. And Woody Allen is so just Woody Allen. And he ends up getting a phone call from his wife, who's leaving him in the middle of the audition and (laughs) ends up yelling at her. And it's just like, he's a horrible picture of himself. But that's Woody Allen. He's like, I'm not afraid to show you just how ugly I really am. And Mm -hmm. that's Kind of refreshing, kind of <laughs>
2: <laughs> the honesty. All right. Well, speaking of refreshing, I did say that this uh, this film really kind of cleansed my palate from a uh, action adventure, but still gave a, a sweet feeling at the end. So, Jeremy, tell us what it's all about. This synopsis is coming to us from Rio de Janeiro. The successful Hollywood screenplay
1: writer Gil Pender is spending vacation in Paris with his fiance, Inez and her parents, and his future father-in-law is on on a business trip. Gil is an aspiring novelist that loves Paris and dreams of living in the city after getting married to Inez. Furthermore, the romantic Gil believes that the golden age of Paris was in the 1920s, and he loves to walk through the streets of the city. When Inez meets her former boyfriend, the pseudo-intellect Paul, with his girlfriend Carol, they spend some time together visiting tourist attractions. At night, they drink wine at a party, and Paul invites the couple to go dancing. Gil, however, turns them down and prefers to return walking alone to the hotel. At midnight, an old car stops and the passengers invite him to go to a party And soon he realizes he is back in the 1920s where he meets his favorite writers, musicians, and artists
2: living out his dreams. All right. So this is magical element that Judy was talking about here. Then you get a time travel, you get, I guess you would call it fictionalized versions of of real people that that existed, uh, real famous authors and artists. But that's what really popped to me. As soon as you start seeing these people, you're like, wow, all of these actors are people that we're seeing. And a lot of them in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, in fact. Uh, yes, yes, Tom Hiddleston playing F. Scott Fitzgerald. And my uh, I don't know, maybe he'll show up there eventually, but you have as uh Salvador Dali, the Adrian Brody, and he's like Dali, Dali, huh? Ah, ah, see, see, Dali. You know, I paint you like a rhinoceros. No, anyway, but uh, there's just good stuff in there. But my personal favorite is Corey Stoll, AKA Yellow Jacket from Ant-Man. Uh, I didn't realize that, you know, I'd see him in anything else, uh, but there he was as Ernest Hemingway, and he has just the best lines in this film. He's just this motivating guy. And I just, I love Gil comes to him at a certain point and he's basically asking him to read his book for him. And he's just like, you know, just to give me an opinion. He's like, well, my opinion is that I hate it. And he's like, what? You haven't even read it. And he's like, well, you know, look, uh, if it's if it's bad, I'm gonna hate it because I hate bad writing. If it's good, I'm gonna be jealous and hate it all the more, you know? So he just like tells him, you know, you don't want the opinion of writer. Jeff, did you have a favorite of the uh of the artists that he runs into?
3: I mean, you know, like the ones that you guys hit. I mean, obviously Adrian Brody is always Unique in everything that he does. and um, Sometimes to a fault. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. For me, as far as the different, the different characters, I, I really liked the setting, that smoky cafe, sort of a underground feel and everything like that. I really connected with that idea, even though for me, you know, I've never dreamed of running into those specific people. But the idea that these huge, big, esteemed artists could all be in this one place back in you know the 1920s is is pretty fantastic and that something like that actually happened I know like for me the one that I've always thought is that J.R.R. Tolkien who wrote Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis would always Mm -hmm. sit down I think they had coffee every morning they would just sit down in a coffee shop for croissants and they would talk about like religion I'm like oh my gosh is that did that really happen and that sort of a thing, like, I totally see that appeal of just these great minds, these great creative people all being in the same space.
2: Yeah, Well, what, what I find really interesting about this film, too, is like the ultimate thesis of the film, if you want to call it that, get really technical, is that people are nostalgic. You know, you have the, the Owen Wilson character, Gil, he's he has this this concept of, you know, the 20s in Paris were the golden age, right? Like, so to him, like, it was this magical time, can never be matched. It'd be so wonderful to have lived there. And when he magically travels back in time, gets to know these people, falls in love with this woman, to her, it's like the period, you know, 50 years before her or whatever that she thinks was so amazing and magical. And at a certain point, they travel back to that time, and they talk to the artists, you know, like Toulouse-Lautrec and all these different uh, artists that the Moulin Rouge, and they're talking to them. And then what do they learn? You know, like basically they have their belief that, oh, no, it was the Renaissance, right, or whatever, that that was the most amazing time to live. So it's like the whole thesis is that everybody kind of puts this beautiful sheen on the period history in which, you know, they they imagine is magical, not the time they're living in. And that's ultimately Gill. Comes to realize, no, you know, now is the time and life is beautiful as it is, and you seize the moment or whatever it's going to be. And I just, I just find that so interesting, especially for those that know me. You know, I kind of live in the past as a hobby and I <laughs> write for a nostalgia website and I just kind of take a lot of time curating uh, collections and, and different things. So it really kind of woke me up to that concept of, you know what, you know, there is a lot of beautiful, wonderful things happening you now, this film being one of them. Yeah. But, uh, but I just thought it was pretty magical in that way as well.
3: Well, I was going to just add in that, like, again, going back to what makes Woody Allen unique is his honesty, is that a struggling writer who has a thing for nostalgia, it's again, that's Woody Allen. You look at (laughs) all of Woody Allen's movies and they're either nostalgic for the glory days of New York back. I mean, like you look at Manhattan and that's what Manhattan is all about. I mean, he even films it in black and white to give it that sort of a thing or Annie Hall is one big, long, nostalgic to the relationship that got away and the way that my life went wrong. And so for Woody Allen to make a movie about nostalgia feels very personal to him.
1: All right, we have some pretty big shoes to fill. So let's go around the horn and hear your pitches. Judy, do you want to start us off?
0: Oh, okay. So my sequel is called... Midnight in Free Paris. And basically, it is the story of two young musicians in present-day Paris who travel back in time via the same means as the first movie to Paris in the 40s during the war. So it's occupied by Nazi Germany and also by the Vichy French government that was complicit with the Nazis and basically they end up meeting up with some musicians who were allowed to continue performing in Paris at the time and who used that ability to assist the resistance. So they end up meeting these artists, but also helping transmit messages to the resistance fighters during the war. And so it's basically the same premise, but we're moving up into World War II.
2: Interesting, interesting. Adam, do you want to go? Sure, mine is a direct sequel as I often do. It's called Called midnight in Florence, Gil and Gabrielle have continued their relationship. It's been a few years, but Gil is starting to get insecure because he's so much older than Gabrielle, and he's wondering if she's going to get bored with him. And so he learns about her desire and love of the Renaissance era in Italy. So he decides that he's going to do this research and everything he needs to do in order to find the lines and the coordinates that match up to to find a way to uh, make the magic happen again for her. So he takes her to Florence and just as he's hoping, they're transported back into the 15th century and they meet uh, Lorenzo de' Medici and he takes them off to his palace. So he goes ahead, takes them to meet Michelangelo and Botticelli and Leonardo da Vinci and all these people. So they kind of have this magical experience. But what Gil was planning to do after that night was to propose to her. But Medici takes a lot. Liking to her and keeps gabrielle for himself and so now he gets into this whole adventure thing where he gets thrown out of the palace and then you know 5 a.m hits in that magic hour he's stuck trying to get back there and he befriends this uh, nice german man named rolf and they head back together that evening and with the help of the artists, he's essentially trying to get to Gabrielle, free her so he can propose and they can get on with their life together. And the main premise of the film is not to be so worried about yourself and just enjoying your relationship as it is and letting it be something special. Anyway, but there's, there's some <laughs> other details in there, but that's the basic pitch.
3: All right. And Jeff, bring us home. Excellent. So mine would be noon in Dubai And as opposed to being nostalgic, this one's more future focused. So in present day Dubai, there's a 22 year old, I called him a failure to launch someone where he's 22 and he's done with college and he's living with his parents. His parents are always on him about, you know, getting a career and whatever. Uh, But he's always kind of like talking about the future and how everything's going to be better once we can do this and once this and this and this and then blah, 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 blah. He just moved to Dubai and then he heads downtown one day into like a Starbucks or something like that. And we see the clock hit noon. He sees a flash of light outside. He goes out to investigate. And as soon as he opens the door, all of a sudden he's in the year 2045. And he looks around. And and the future, rather than being, you know, like Futurama future or it's crazy, like doesn't look anything like modern day, I would picture it more almost like Minority Report. Not kind of the Mm -hmm. dirty part of it, but just where it's, it's similar enough to look like our world, but it's futuristic enough to see like all the technology and all the advances and everything along those lines. And my thought would be the plot would kind of go through, maybe he would try some of the Marty McFly future tricks, like bringing knowledge of the future so he could be profitable in the present and that doesn't work for some reason, or then he tries reinventing something that he tries to bring it back from the past or from the future and that doesn't work. So then he decides that he always wanted to live in the future, so he's going to, but he doesn't, either everyone thinks he's an idiot, I don't know if I want to go quite that far, but eventually the point would be, just like Midnight in Paris, is that the point of this would be that present that he's actually living in is where he fits the best, the best time for him to be living, and the future will come when the future comes.
1: Interesting. So, which pitch do we like best?
2: Adam. Okay. Well, I'm intrigued by Judy's pitch. It is very interesting to have the kind of the whole almost, you know, spy game type thing going on within that. But I really I feel like there's so much potential with Jeff's just to take it the exact opposite route. I really think that that delivers a lot because i going to the back to the future too that you kind of referenced i feel like there's potential there to be futurists in filmmaking and it would be one of those films that you know 30 years from now people could look back at say okay oh they got this right they got this right so i think that's really entertaining so i would vote for jeff in this case
3: all right jeff Well, I was going to say Adams because it feels the most Woody Allen-ish of the three of ours where him kind of realizing that he should not be so neurotic, that seems like a Woody Allen realization that would be really exciting to see. And Judy?
0: Well, I think I was going to say Adams as well because I like the idea of running into the familiar characters again, getting to kind of explore that, and then the idea of like a Lettris Medici is kind of like Oh, that's <laughs> oh, um, so yeah so that would be my vote
1: well my thoughts were similar to adam that jeff's pitch was the most intriguing there was almost like opening the sandbox to us it was all whatever we wanted to do but because this is a woody allen sequel we would have to go with adams <laughs> so
3: <laughs> or else we'd be tied anyway yeah. uh, we right be we'd any. be
2: tied we got no
3: tiebreaker
2: so <laughs> yeah well that was the whole thing is i almost did you know i just it was it's definitely a sequel in every sense of the word where there's almost no you know it's same premise same everything but i just felt like that's what he would do right he's just like well we just find another era because like that woody allen that's what i feel like it's not about it's not about the adventure itself it's not about all that it's almost like there's this neurotic piece of it and how do you expand that into something else and everything like life and and even this magic premise is getting in the way right so there it is all he's trying to do is propose to the girl before she gets bored with him you know like that type of thing so because he's all worried about it so what well, i
3: wonder too because i know like with your premise it sounded like it was kind of he has to get the girl back right yeah so there's some level of adventure to it mm-hmm. yeah and which would be kind of interesting because woody allen doesn't really do adventure i mean sometimes he does like madcap Action what was a murder stuff, mystery right? whatever but yeah not really it's usually more just like you know, him scrambling around trying to hide something or something like that. So it would be interesting to see what he could do with getting over that neurosis by (laughs) claiming, I can actually do this.
2: Yeah, what's interesting is that in this, it's kind of like, I I almost imagined that that group of artists, because what it is, is like when they go to this party at Medici's castle, the whole concept is like, she's meeting all these artists, she's enthralled, they all want to paint her, they all want to sketch her, you know, all these things are happening, She's, she's inspiring these Renaissance artists, so she's kind of in the middle middle of it and she almost doesn't realize that she's a captive when Gil gets thrown out so it's not like it's like she's this princess in peril she's having a great time (laughs) he's just the guy on the other on the outside trying to get back in and save the day there's just kind of the element that i thought was a little fun just the damsel in distress that doesn't know that she's uh, in trouble in any way so that that was kind of the the way i thought it would be fun to play with he was like oh you know there, there he is you know with oh this woman again women you know they don't understand it they don't get it you know I'm just trying to be a man. I'm trying to be whatever his, his issue would be. Um, now, but, yeah, go Would ahead. he
3: be? Would he be intimidated? Because it didn't feel to me like he in the in the first movie. It didn't feel like he was intimidated. I mean, I guess he wasn't even comparing himself to these other artists. And I mean, even the boldness of giving Gertrude Stein and Ernest Hemingway his book and saying like, "Can you read this and tell me?" Like, that's a pretty bold thing for an author to do. And well, but I think like that's the was... difference,
2: is that is that back then, that was his dream, right? So he was living it. So yeah, mm. of course, he's just in awe of everybody he meets, but now it's her dream, and he's not all about the Renaissance. And so he's dealing with these, you know, these crazy, dirty, whatever people, however he's perceiving them, you know? So it's a total reversal. He's just like, wow, this, you know, this really is, you know, one person's golden era is another person's trash pile, you know, whatever he's thinking, you know, so... So he's having to deal with it, again, while she's enjoying it so much. And so it's kind of like um, – that, that's kind of where I see the uh, an extra layer of, of either – tension or just you know difficulty that, that what he's trying to work his way through because i think that's a big premise of relationships too right uh, i've i've known people like they were trying to find the person that matched them exactly they had all the same interests and all of that and it's just that's not life that's not you're not trying to find your twin you know you're trying to find the yeah. person maybe that complements you the person that yeah you have you could work together yeah so it's it, i think that could probably work its way into the story as well that he kind of learns to appreciate what she appreciates also something along those lines.
3: Although I would say that two major epiphanies in Woody Allen's life, like "Eh, we might not want to overshoot, like (laughs) he's going to understand women and he's going to get over his neuroticies. Well, maybe one at (laughs) a time. Yeah. Well no, so the question
2: here is I, I almost feel like it just is with Midnight in Paris like that's the basic premise that's the story whatever happens here and there like to me it's almost a, it's about the characterizations and because yeah. we have so little to go on with you know Leonardo da Vinci we've seen him on film in so many different ways you know he's been brought to life uh, but Michelangelo or Botticelli or Medici, people who maybe art history majors know who they are but not everybody's maybe heard the name in passing right. uh, or what do you Ninja guys Turtles.
3: As ninja yeah, roles. Ninja Turtles. Yeah,
2: <laughs> but like with casting, what what do you guys think? Who are just some some actors you would love to throw into some of these roles?
3: Well, now and before that, now is there going to yeah. be? Are they? Are we spending most of the film then in the Renaissance? Is there much of a present day? Action. I know you said there's the part where he can't get back, and so he befriends Rolf. And- yeah.
2: Well, the the only other part of that is that the the guy, the German guy, Rolf. Yeah, that he's hanging out with. Basically, it's just that brief, uh, you know, twelve more hours that he has to hang around. So they spend time. Basically, Rolf kind of is catching him up on the Renaissance because they're trying to figure out what their game plan would be when they go back. But there's there's not. I didn't really plan for a whole lot to be going on. How ever like one thought i had is maybe there is like a minor love story or something for rolf like at the cafe he goes to every day where they met him maybe there's this waitress or this other patron there that he always is wanting to you know make a move on or whatever and and strike up a conversation with but never does it you know so maybe this makes him more bold by going through this adventure and then by the end he's able to to reach out to her, but he's doing it in a very, you know, chivalrous of, you know, you know, fantastical way, you know, something like that maybe for the present day, but not a whole lot. No, it was more of it taking place in the Renaissance.
3: Okay, because if it is a Woody Allen movie, I mean, like we talked about before, the one element you need is someone who thinks they're smarter than him. So, <laughs> I mean, unless yeah, that's it's part the of foil, the neuroticies yeah. that he's getting over. And I mean, maybe are those all of those tropes that we talked about, those are all in the Renaissance? Right. Well, that that's where the surprises come. That's it's It's a little bit more
2: fresh by doing that and not mm. setting it so much in a modern day city, which is... Woody Allen's wheelhouse right yeah. most often so I thought it'd be fun to see like well now he's going up against Medici or maybe Medici has a sidekick guy you know and that guy's always like talking down or the guy who runs the castle for him or whatever it is but yeah that he's always trying to prove that he's more quick-witted or whatever it is yeah I mean that could be he's not fighting with swords he's fighting with words or, you know something like that he's confusing people he's
1: so okay. are we are we saying there's going to be a parallel storyline between what's happening in the past with the present and
2: what he learns in the past, he applies in the present? Well, the, I mean, the goal is that when he comes out of the past is that he has learned something so he can essentially be, you know, it probably it's before they come back, but he tells Gabrielle everything he was meaning to let her know. And maybe, maybe again, because she's not having such an issue with being there that when he's trying to pull her away, maybe she sees it as, you know, he's not supporting her he's or whatever it is that he's being overbearing and maybe that troubles their relationship maybe she wants to stay there and he has to convince her to come back or something along those lines too that could be another kind of element Well, and
3: even like you were saying i mean the whole part feeding into his his neuroses is that idea that it's almost like if the relationship isn't working it must be her fault therefore we need to go back to the renaissance so she can get fixed (laughs) <laughs> and, like, that's part of the problem. To show her how good she has
2: it and that this is what, what it could be. Well, you, or more
3: like you, know, like you were absolutely. saying, with given the perspective and she needs to be, like, go through what I went through and get that inspiration. Mm-hmm. Even though it's it's not, like, it's not that she was lacking necessarily.
2: Like. Yeah, and I did have an element that I didn't mention that she's kind of a frustrated painter, which is why he was hoping to kind of inspire her and give her that. You know, so that is that is no ah that would be why you'd go back to the renaissance thing yeah. yes
3: so my thought though like in again talking about those different tropes is that like because my one thought was with all of these characters is probably the most well known to an audience the the Ernest hemingway if you will would probably be leonardo right um uh, but then would we want leonardo to be the one who thinks he's smarter than gil and then like to make it because then in a Woody Allen movie, usually we'd make it that he actually isn't or that he is just really pompous and full of himself, which is not usually the way Leonardo comes across. Mm-hmm. So that would affect the casting, I would think, if we want him to be that way.
0: Leonardo, would he would be the smartest guy there anyway. Like he's one of the smartest guys ever. So it's kind of less fun if he's also the intellectual lording it over everybody because he knows he's the smartest guy. Everyone knows that. So I think it's kind of more fun if it's Medici who was like the, almost the hanger on like he was the patron of everybody, Right, but that's just kind of offer. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's not the artist, he's not the scientist or inventor, but he likes to get that shine on him and it makes him a, another good antagonist for the Owen Wilson, Woody Allen character, because he's like, you know, talking about how his understanding of the art or everything that he's contributed, and it's like, ugh, you know, just like, so annoying. Right. <laughs> and then on top of that, he's trying to steal your woman. So it's, like, double annoying.
2: Yeah. No, I I think those are all good kind of elements to be mixing around inside there because you do want it to be, again, we focus on the neuroses, we focus on the quirks of, of each of the characters and what they're bringing to the table while staying within, you know, the... The Woody Allen tropes that everybody's familiar with. But again, it's just in a new new setting that we're not used to. And I think he could probably have a lot of fun with that because that is the other thing about Woody Allen is he does a lot of different styles. As much as like the, the content might almost be the same, but he does yeah. take chances on a lot of different things. So I'm sure right. he wouldn't want to do the same film twice exactly. in the same universe. So we give him that to play with. But so I, I am curious about your casting ideas, though, as to who we would like, when I think of the Rolf character, I think of just, like, an older actor that I just enjoy seeing. Like, let's think of like an Anthony Hopkins I wonder if he would you know because I don't know if he's ever worked with Woody Allen but if you could imagine an Anthony Hopkins in a Woody Allen film like I think that'd be really interesting but what, what would he do? See I um,
3: would kind of think Lee, he would I would see him as more of like Leonardo role because he's the wise older true. and no one's going to ever think they were you know smarter or that Anthony Hopkins could say pretty much whatever you he wants and you're not going <laughs> to think he's condescending because it's still coming from Anthony Hopkins.
2: That's true yeah No, I, I, I could see him yeah he, he, Either role, he would fit very well. But yeah, I think I—I yeah. I almost, but I—I I guess I feel like Leonardo da Vinci, or that that mentor role is so typical of Anthony Hopkins that it'd be more fun yeah. to see him as maybe the love-struck kind of guy who's very smart but doesn't act on the knowledge he has or something which is kind of how i see the rolf character so then he mm-hmm. could then go and help and learn himself along the way which doesn't seem to always be anthony hopkins always seems to be the guy who who's got it all figured out and i'd love to see him play right. against well, like,
3: that. i don't know the voice ah, that makes it i, I have difficulty <laughs> it's so commanding that. okay it is
0: well, when you said German guy, I was like, "Oh, Christoph Waltz," because oh, sure. like oh two German actors, basically. But uh-huh. I think because like, <laughs> with the movies he's done, like he does seem to be rather scary a lot. But he also plays weird pretty good, kind of like yeah, just like kind of erratic and weird. Which mm-hmm. I don't know if that
3: him and Owen Waltz Wilson character. together. <laughs> oh, <goodness. laughs>
0: but I was like, no, "Oh, German yeah. guy." That's the only one. <laughs>
3: Yeah, no, I well, think it's fine too. If you're going older, I was picturing Bill Nike. When in doubt, I always picture
0: oh. what's
2: I he been in most recently? What would well, I know him from?
3: Uh what would you know him from? He he was in Love Actually. He's the the pop singer, the bad uh, okay. dad, granddad. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. He's in all of the the hot fuzz movies and
2: Okay. He's, he's uh, a riot. So we got Christoph um, Waltz, we, or uh Bill Nike. If, are, you, okay. if you think
3: that Anthony Hopkins Jerry. can pull it
2: off, I bet he could. Give Give the man a shot.
0: Oh, but then he's <laughs> old so, like <a> man.
1: <laughs> because you got to have the conflicting love interest. Uh, Medici. 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 Okay.
2: So I mean, uh, what's
1: what's the age range we're looking? First off,
2: he, he'd be like a middle-aged guy, kind of like mid forties to 50, like you want him to be like kind of an older, semi-gross guy, but he's got all this power and money, you know. So that's why I was trying to think of somebody who could inhabit that very I mean, well. I mean, Definitely a character actor of some sort. Does he I have th- to be
3: gross? <laughs> Doesn't
2: have to be. Why? Who are you thinking of? Not
3: gross, like because I was thinking of like yeah,
2: more like lecherous. <laughs> gross. His attitude is yeah. gross. Not that he is.
3: I I was thinking of either, if you want gross, either Timothy Spall that played um, Wormtongue, in, or not Wormtongue, what was his name, in Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. The little wormy Wormtail? bat guy who gets his worm tail. Or Wormtongue, which was real creepy. Ooh, no. Too creepy? That's too bad yeah but we're not those guys
2: those guys are like snake like they're kind of like ah, yeah we're like this is more of a guy who's like a pompous full of himself kind of almost like a tough guy you would think because if you look if you see there's a bust a famous kind of bust of medici and an artwork you know portraits that have been done he's got a very pronounced jaw and like nose and he's a very he looks
3: like a buff tough guy so well
2: why why don't we go stanley tucci then Oh, I always love Stanley Tucci.
3: You can always put Stanley Tucci. Yeah, he'll
2: he'll play the role yeah. very very nicely. <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I think I think that's a good choice. Judy, did you ever anybody I, I don't know,
3: but I'd kind of like to see Stanley Tucci as one of the other artists, though, because I feel like he'd really be able to play with, I could see him showing up as Raphael or somebody like that.
2: I mean, de- definitely. I mean, it, you know, I have my own thoughts about all the all the different artists, people I'd love to jump in. But yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to think of somebody who's kind of a commanding presence yep. when they're on screen. That Jeffrey just is- Rush? But again, see you. You keep going to these like smaller, skinny guys, and I'm thinking of like you want larger. Big? Yeah, like physically big and like just come on the screen like a, a big force, and that's what okay. I was trying. to say.
0: John Goodman. I was oh, going to say John Goodman. John
2: Goodman. <laughs> <laughs> he would be a lot of fun, but I, he's almost like a Henry the Eighth type. But I, <laughs> yeah. but I still feel like he he, could, he did King Ralph. Huh? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> But no, no, but I actually, I I think that could work because I feel like Jock Goodman's got a good range to him. We're like, you want him to be lovable. And I feel like he could play both sides. He could be the lovable at the beginning and then kind of turn evil. And, but at the same time, be kind of like goofy evil throughout. So I think that could work. It's always nice to see John Goodman in something non sure. Stones related. They
0: <laughs> have to have Italian accents because I think that's a bit prohibitive. No, and I that think that'd
2: be, be. funny. I, I think it'd actually be funny if they all have normal accents, you know, and like they're all playing characters, interesting, quirky voices, but they're not necessarily accents.
3: They all had accents in this one, though, didn't they? Yeah. Well, most of them were American in
0: Paris. Yeah. so oh, that's true. the french ones had french accents but mostly he was talking to americans yeah it is but, but, I, I, no,
2: but i i know but i i don't know if you guys aren't opposed to john goodman i think that'd be again john goodman in a woody oh, allen all right. film where does he go what does he do that's exciting <laughs> to me now for as far as like the artists where you're looking at Michelangelo or you're looking at Botticelli or I think even Donatello is kind of around in, in some areas there. I want to see people like Sam Rockwell, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Like gra- grab these people that always make really interesting choices when they're given like a character to create. So I think he would be a lot of fun to see. They had Tom Hiddleston in the last one, so we won't get him back. Uh, but I actually thought also maybe Woody Allen for Da Vinci. In a weird way. You know what I'm saying? Like he shows up and now he's giving this, he is neurotic. He is giving the advice, you know, but he could say that he's learned something. I think that'd be great just to throw him in there for that. What if... uh, Like an honest deathbed, Da Vinci. Yeah,
3: well, because I was going to say, I don't know that I feel like Woody Allen gets meta in his movies, because it would be interesting... Like, one of the things I love, a uh, Frank Darabont, one of his first movies, The Majestic, is Jim Carrey's a writer, and he's pitching it to these faceless voices, and all of the voices are like these Hollywood bigwigs. So it was kind of this meta sort of a thing like that. So it would be interesting to have all of these influential people be like Hollywood bigwigs, but that doesn't feel how Woody Allen does it. So again, to put himself in it as his own inspiration... Yeah, as a joke, I think. I mean, not, it wouldn't be that meta level of, oh, you're inspiring yourself. Like, what if we did John Cleese for Leonardo? Yeah, that'd be fun. Oh my
0: gosh, it's awesome.
3: So he's still a comic figure, but he has a, he has a British accent, so he can't be, he must be (laughs) intelligent. (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
2: Okay. Well, no. I think I think that's pretty strong cast, and obviously we have the same actress come back as Gabrielle, so we don't have to worry about that as much for the women. That the only thing we're missing is maybe Medici's wife or sister or somebody that is playing kind of one of the other archetypes that Judy ran us through earlier. Yeah. I don't know if we need another female character in this just to have, uh, again, <laughs> a more shrill female in the mix. So you're getting full Woody. And
3: I feel like, especially at least, if Assassin's Creed has taught me anything about the Medici's, is that the females were very strong-willed in that family, okay. and so to. Throw, I was actually
2: <laughs> gonna bring that up too, Jeff.
1: Yeah,
3: and they are also apparently worship strange gods and do all sorts. All of All right, things so
2: who who is a weird actress that could be overbearing? Because I, I would think close yeah, Helena Bonham
0: Carter.
3: Oh, my gosh. With, oh, yeah. Yeah, but Helena Bonham Carter with John Goodman? That's weird. I was going to say Frances maybe
2: McDormand, her... maybe. Ooh. She, she could probably pull something I off. I
3: like her, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Or uh, what's her Helena, face?
3: I'd like to see Helena Bonham Carter as... I don't know. Do they have female artists back then? Not well, maybe like... that
2: could just be something that, like, unknown that is revealed. Like, there was a female artist or one of the... Yeah, I don't know, Something like that. Because,
3: yeah, she, I mean... She can do anything, as long as you're okay with the fact that she is going to do <laughs>
2: But yeah, I mean, is there anybody else we want to throw in here just for the sake of casting? Because we love to cast <laughs> these people we're just like can we just, we love i mean i i was i was trying to think of a role because i was just mentioning before we started but i love peter sarsgaard but he's like he's usually playing villains and i don't know if we need any more villains in this piece uh but he's just such a weird actor he makes like really odd choices <laughs> as well so i just feel like he's always so compelling when i see him i'm just like where yeah. where could he fit in i mean he could just be maybe he could just be medici's right hand man like he could be real good and he's kind of pulling some strings here. There actually was an assassination attempt on Medici back in the day. Um, so, he could maybe be a guy who's like a spy on the inside. And maybe like Gil helps to foil that at some point, And that's how he and Medici maybe get on better terms. And Medici gives him his woman back type thing. Maybe he foils the assassination. I don't know. Something along those lines. And Peter Sarsgaard is the one who gets his yeah, head on yeah. a pike. Among you gotta have at least thing.
3: one Sarsgaard. I mean, yeah, <laughs>
2: they're in everything I'm these
3: good. days. <laughs> it is. It is- Oh, I was just going to say, it is funny, like you were talking about, and and even, you know, reflecting back on Midnight in Paris, where it's, it's interesting having those people like an Adrian Brody, who isn't necessarily a, I mean, not like a character actor in that he only plays one character, but just he plays very unique characters. So to get him Mm -hmm. as someone like Salvador Dali, like is a very eye catching choice. So there are definitely those actors out there that, yeah, like you were talking about, that do those kind of choices where it's just kind of like, oh, that's an interesting... But then you do get some... Like I was thinking, like, Sasha Baron Cohen really seems like if he wants to, he can he has a very wide range of doing wackadoo characters mm-hmm. um, and doing them well, but across the spectrum, not just in one particular. And again, theater. especially
2: with the Renaissance, that's so open for interpretation. Cause we, we just don't have, we don't have video footage. We don't have audio right. footage you know, or direct writings from these artists in many cases. So now they could just, that actor has the ability to make any choice they want. As long as Woody Allen's give it the seal of approval on that. Yeah. Which, by the way, i'll just I'll just mention that Corey stole when he was playing Hemingway in midnight in Paris. He didn't get any direction. He just showed up on set, and Woody Allen said, "Go." just like ran the camera on him and then right after Woody Allen's like that was exactly what I was imagining you got it and so wow. like Crystal's like, I'm glad because I had no idea what I was doing <laughs> so, so it was just pretty funny but anyway but no but I, I think this is shaping up to be a fun one I'm glad you know like I we say, I just two, I feel like it's wacky yeah I
0: have two suggestions one will yeah. add to the wackiness one yeah. maybe not so. but um since it is in Italy there's like I don't know too many Italian actors, but Roberto Benigni. Oh, we totally forgot
2: Roberto Benigni. I used all of my English.
0: Something. (laughs) He could be anyone running around.
2: That'd be great. And
0: I think he was called the Woody Allen of Italy. Oh,
2: interesting. Not the Jerry Lewis of Italy?
0: (laughs) No, no, but yeah, I guess his style is similar, but in Italian, I don't know. So I think that'd be fun. And then the other idea I had for a character, Zach, I remember seeing this movie a while ago with Charlton Heston and rex harrison Do you ever see this movie called the agony and the ecstasy which sounds oh weird, yeah right? yeah yeah but it's about just, yeah yeah painting the Sistine chapel and rex harrison is like the cardinal or whatever who commissioned mm-hmm.
2: it yeah it's an old movie from the 50s
0: yeah and so i was like oh we should have the type, you know the pope or the cardinal walking around because again the popes there's <laughs> uh, was a whole thing about who's the real pope who's not and so yeah. Pope I'm like, I'm the real Pope like, That the, would be pretty That great. other guy, he's an imposter I'm not, <laughs>
2: I'm, I'm, I'm Hey, it's sure. the Pope
0: Yeah, so yeah. Kind of like, I don't know, not to be offensive To Catholics, but you know, you'd have a Pope Where it's like, you could go In a funny direction with that as yeah, well Yeah,
2: absolutely that, no, we, that We'd have great. to
1: put Sasha Baron Cohen as one of the Popes As the
2: Popes, or like popes. Yeah. <laughs> That's great <laughs> Uh, well, I feel like if you're going to do that, then you have to have Tom Green play the other Pope. So you have oh, Tom oh Green my
3: gosh. and Sasha wow. going around. at
2: it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All
1: I'm right. sure he's still alive, but not yeah. around in movies much. Yeah, that's so much. So, no
3: one thing which I know Adam you usually bring us to or sometimes you do or not is that the interesting thing is that Woody Allen does definitely have a distinctive musical style usually mm-hmm. and so like even Midnight in Paris was a very kind of piano it was more of a 1960s 70s that sort of I don't know the music didn't feel like 1920s for I don't the, know, the it soundtrack had kind of old, old jazz style somewhat but yeah, but yeah so did. what do you do with I don't know that I would I feel like it would have a renaissance theme i don't, well, yeah, I, I don't I feel know like exactly the what guy kind of mark
2: a, yeah. I, i'm pretty sure with princess bride another episode judy was on go back and check it out we had a mark Knopfler of dire straits he did the soundtrack for that Uh not the yeah. soundtrack really i mean it was just a score but there was a lot of mandolin a lot of guitar work i feel like you get mark Knopfler back around if he's still around i assume he is and so i think we had that discussion in that episode but i feel like he would be he, he could go and he could give it that sound whether or unless you're saying Jeff you think it would be interesting to juxtapose it with more contemporary soundtrack that could be interesting too. I
3: just feel like and again that's that's kind of the part that gives a lot of Woody Allen's movies that different feel is that the music almost doesn't fit with the movie where it's kind of like like you watch Manhattan and Manhattan a lot of the music is symphonic and stuff like that which again Changes the way that the movie feels. So, same thing with Midnight in Paris. A lot of times, that the real simple kind of music, if they would have given it this, you know, sci fi score, <laughs> it would have changed the feel of the entire movie. Yeah. So, the same thing with this one, where it's almost like even if you gave it the same score as Midnight in Paris had, it would give the movie a very different feel.
2: Pan flute. Let's have well, a pan flute when in doubt.
3: score. <laughs> or the mouth harp. Yeah. <laughs> there
2: yeah, well, I'd, yeah, I think I—I'm sure he would pull something out with that. Then it would, we'd make a suggestion and be like, "Well, I—I I had it figured out already, so thank you." But you know, he'll—he'll yeah. he'll let us know.
0: Yeah, or at least maybe Italian opera. I mean.
2: Oh, see there you go. That Italian, would be cool. Like Just get the three tenors out of retirement. Well, there's
3: only right. two of them left, aren't there?
2: Oh, that's too bad. Mm-hmm. Who left us, Jeff? Who left
3: us? I thought didn't Pavarotti pass away? No. We'll have to look it up. Either maybe way, we'll get all our my opera apologies fans. to to you, Domingo. <laughs> I didn't mean Change to tonight. offend. <laughs> Well,
2: what do we think, Jeremy? We got a film here. Are we gonna market it to the indie houses, and uh, people can see Midnight in Florence. Or do you think we'll get it into the main theaters? Well, if
1: Woody Allen actually directs it, we could probably get this at least into some theaters.
2: It'll make hundred and sixty million this exactly. time.
1: That's well, right, Owen Wilson, John
2: Goodman. <laughs> yep, John Goodman getting him in the seats. <laughs> <laughs> Just off of Star Power.
1: All righty, folks. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes, and be sure to share us with your friends. I'm sure you have some. Find the links to all of our social media on our website, sequelquestpod.com, email us at sequelquestpod at gmail.com drop us a message on what you'd like to hear us talk about on the show and be sure to share your own fan
2: art with us so until next week in the words of hemingway no podcast is terrible if the story is true the prose is clean and honest and if it affirms courage and grace under pressure sequel quest is that podcast don't quote me on that quote (laughs) hemingway
0: we thank you for listening to this episode of sequel quest and invite you to continue the fake movie fun on social media submit your ideas for future episodes to sequel quest pod at gmail.com or SQPod pod on twitter the films and characters discussed on sequel quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders no copyright infringement is intended this has been a presentation of the retro network